sermon text this morning is James 15, 12 through 20. Hear the word of the Lord. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth, or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call to the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another, that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This is God's word. Let's pray together, Father. We ask that you would bless the reading of your word. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And so we come to it hopeful, expectant for you to speak and for you to work in us and through us. So we pray that we would submit ourselves collectively, corporately as your people under your word for your glory and for our good. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, you can be seated. We have finally come to the end of our summer sermon series through the book of James. I mentioned in the email, the summer does feel like it's, it feels like it's come to an end because, you know, vacations typically are over and kids are going back to school this week and, you know, we just finished our summer sermon series, but uh, living in Mississippi has taught me one thing. Um, and that's that summer isn't over until November, okay? So <laughs> we, we have picked up on that. A lot of y'all are like just really hoping. Like, I don't know if you're hoping your words will make it happen, but you're just like, it's fall. It's August. It's fall. It's not. It's not. I'm not, I'm not buying it. I'm not believing it. Uh, we all know better, okay? The heat is here to stay. Um, but, you know, when, when August comes there, there's obviously a transition. Kids go back to school, and uh, in the life of Trace, we typically pick up the pace when it comes to our ministry. So I'm not going to do announcements now. We have those coming at the end. But we do have a lot that's, that's picking up and happening uh, this month. And, you know, we're finishing James this week. So just so you know where we are going next week, we're going to preach a psalm. It's kind of just a transition between series. So a psalm is going to be preached. We're going to talk a little bit more about our long-term vision for preaching through the psalm. Um, we'll probably mention that next week uh, to you. Um, but after, after that, on August 11th, we're going to begin a three-week sermon series on the church. We're going to talk about the identity of the church, the life of the church, and the mission of the church. That'll take us all the way to September 1st. And, uh, you know, we typically don't meet for life groups on, on Labor Day. You're welcome to meet, but we typically don't. So we don't want to start a new book on, on that weekend. So on September 8th, we're actually going to start, we're going to, you know, our normal practice is once we finish the book in the New Testament, we go back to the Old Testament to give you the whole counsel of God, and we try to preach from a genre we have not preached from yet. And so we all have the distinct privilege of tackling Daniel together. Um, So that should be really fun. Make sure toward November you dust off, you know, 
all those, uh, those guides and maps and, and figures that you have for you know, how all of that has matched up in history, and we can, we can tackle all that together. Um, but Daniel really is a great book because it's a book that you probably feel like you're familiar with because you know a few stories from it, but there's so much in it you might not be aware. So I, I'm excited to, to walk through Daniel uh, as, we, as we start Life Groups back um, this year. So that's where we're going. But today, we got to finish James. And, you know, whenever you come to the end of a lot of letters in the New Testament, you usually get a little bit of a break because it's usually just Paul being like, oh, hey, by the way, tell this person I said, hey, let them know what's up. Let them know I'm praying for them. Just these final greetings that he offers. But James, he doesn't do that. A lot of people think that James's letter probably started as a sermon. And, and so I typically don't finish my sermons by telling you guys to, you know, say hi, hi to, you know, Grammy and Pappy on your way out. Um, it's, it's, it's a sermon all the way through. And so he, he doesn't stop giving us exhortations. James gives exhortation after exhortation throughout his book because James is most concerned, not with that we believe the right things, but that we are consistent in our lives with the things that we believe. And so the entire, the entire letter has really been a call to a specific kind of faith, a faith in Jesus that both saves and works. So it saves and it works out our salvation. Really, the entire letter reminds me of what Paul wrote in Philippians 2, 12 through 13. He, he said, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And, and really, that's what James has given us. He's given us a field guide for how to live the life of faith. And, and now, especially in chapter 5, he has also shared with us the environment of the life of faith. And really, throughout the letter, the environment of the life of faith is a world that is filled with suffering and sin. And the life of faith does not conclude until Jesus returns. And then it's no longer faith, it's sight. Um, so, you know, throughout chapter five, we've been talking about endurance and we've been talking about perseverance and we're gonna continue that theme this morning. A question for you this morning is, how can we persevere in the life of faith? How can we persevere believing and working out our salvation in a world of suffering and with hearts that are prone to wander in sin. How can we persevere until Jesus returns? Last week, we talked about patience. And, and James also exhorted us to be steadfast and to long for the return of Jesus. And I told you last week, I wasn't sure where to put verse 12, right? I wasn't, I wasn't 100% sure. And, you know, actually, uh, after deciding to include it with, with the rest of the letter, uh, I've actually come up here this morning. And I'm like, you know what? Maybe it would have been better to include it last week, you know, but, you know, I didn't. So here we are. We're going to deal with it this morning. But if we do take verse 12 as the beginning of James's closing remarks, which, you know, you can actually blame commentator Douglas Moo. He does that, and I just believed him. So it's really his fault, okay? I'm just going to shift that blame over to him if I'm wrong on this. Um, but if we do take verse 12 to be the beginning of these final exhortations, still in the context of suffering and sin, um, I, I think we can see three final categories of exhortations related to three areas, areas of integrity in our speech and our behavior, 
a category of prayer through suffering, and then this final category that is so important, the pursuit of those who have wandered from the truth of the gospel. So in light of this context of James 5, where he has condemned the rich who are oppressing the poor, and then encouraged those Christians who were in suffering to wait and to, to be steadfast, he now comes here at the end and he says, here are a few more ways you can endure. Here are, here are a few more ways that you can persevere in your faith until Jesus returns. And so I just want to present this to you in this way. If we're going to persevere together, that's the goal, to persevere together until Jesus returns. If we're going to do that We have to be a people of integrity, we have to be a people of prayer, and we have to be a people of loving pursuit. And I think that's what James outlines for us. So let's look, let's look at the passage this morning. Uh, I would love to see like heads, like, you know, I don't, I don't want eye contact necessarily all the time because I'm hoping that you're looking at the word itself and you're forgetting what I'm saying because the Holy Spirit is revealing something to you and you're working that out here, um, you know, in our time together. So let's look, let's look, let's start in verse 12 and consider what it means to be first a people of integrity. James writes, but above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Now, um, a lot of Bible translators and most Bible scholars include verse 12 with the section we covered last week. They include it, they have verse 7 through verse 12 as its own section uh, in in chapter 5. Now, of course, we know that whenever James originally wrote this, he did not make these divisions himself. It was just a letter, you know, that that he wrote. And the content that we find in what we call chapter 5 really all fits together, and especially from verse 7 all the way to verse 20. But a lot of people do put verse 12 uh, with verses 7 through 11. You know, but all of those commentators, every single person that I read, and even as I read it myself, and probably as you've read it, you're probably like, that verse just seems so out of place. It just, it feels, I don't understand, because the way he frames it, above all. So you're telling me that not taking oaths or not swearing is above patient endurance and above steadfastness, or if you take the approach I have and include it at the very end, but above all? What is that referring to? All that's come before in the letter, we're not to take oaths? Um, there, there's just so much you know, disagreement and confusion as to exactly why it's here. But if you look carefully, James's prohibition of oaths makes sense within the context of perseverance. Now, oaths, you know, if, you, if you're not overly familiar, they were usually taken to reinforce a formal commitment to the Lord. So a person would make a commitment, but it would, it would have this special significance of, of making an oath or a vow to the Lord. I vow to do this. I swear I will do this. You make this formal oath to God. And in Jesus' day, because Jesus has a very similar, almost word-for-word exhortation and warning in Matthew chapter 5, in Jesus' day, in James' day, there was a tendency among the faith community to use oaths to get around a commitment rather than to reinforce it. 
So instead of just simply doing what you should do, you vow that you're going to do it, and that sort of buys you some time. I, I promise, you, you can tell I'm very serious about this. But then they were shirking the responsibility of obedience. They wouldn't do it. Um, even long before James wrote this letter, the author of Ecclesiastes, he offers a very similar warning. In Ecclesiastes 5, 4 through 5, we see, when you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it. For he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. And so James is attacking this use or misuse of oaths. Simple honesty in speech and simple obedience and faithfulness in action were being replaced by a misuse of oaths. Now, you may be thinking this morning, I can't remember the last time I made an oath, you know, and you're just, yeah, how in the world, you know, does this, does this relate? Uh, think of a couple examples, and I don't know if you've ever said these things, but just, you know, let's see if you have. When you fall into sin, especially if it is a, a sin that you repetitively commit, something that you're struggling with, something that you're battling, it just keeps rearing its ugly head. You sin, and you're like, you know, you pray and you ask the Lord to forgive you and then boom, it comes again. Um, have any of you made this solemn vow to God? I swear this is the last time. I swear this is the last time. I promise this is it. Or, or maybe when, when you're faced with suffering, you could be tempted to make an oath to the Lord. I know I'm going through a hard time. And I've seen others, when they go through a hard time, they turn from you, God. They abandon you. Some of them leave the faith, but I won't. I won't. I promise I will stay true. No matter what happens, I swear on Jesus, my Savior, that I won't surrender. See, oaths like this, it reminds you of Peter, right? You remember Peter? Peter promised to the Lord. He passionately Vowed to never abandon Jesus. What was the problem with Peter, though? He lacked the basic, simple integrity to actually remain faithful under fire. God cares more about integrity in your actions and words than these oaths, than these commitments that you make to God. James is basically saying here don't make oaths to prove your commitment to the Lord. Just have the integrity to be faithful and endure. So it, we can look at it in both ways. In light of verses 7 through 11 that we covered last week, oaths aren't necessary to persevere. These, these promises that, that you might make to the Lord to, to be faithful, they're not necessary to persevere. Patience and steadfastness are necessary. And then in light of what we're going to cover today, oaths aren't necessary to persevere. Prayer is. So... Simple faith in Jesus does not require special commitments to Jesus. You don't have to make a special commitment, have a special ceremony or service in order to commit yourself to be holy. Just be holy. That's what the Lord cares about. He cares about simple obedience and simple integrity. Our yes and our no should be sufficient. They shouldn't require any additions or any qualifications as to their trustworthiness. If something isn't true or honest, we shouldn't say it. And if we should do something, we should just do it. 
Our speech and actions should be marked by integrity and truthfulness. So James's point here, I believe, in, in forbidding oaths is not to test your conscience if you're ever called to court to testify. You know, like, oh man, what am I gonna do here? They're asking me to take an oath. Oh man, or if you are in politics, you have to take an oath of office, well, what am I gonna do? And you know, Anabaptist theology, actually, they use this as a, as a motivation to not uh, serve in any capacity where you have to take an oath. That's, that's not what James is getting at here. As usual, James is primarily concerned with what lies beneath the surface of swearing and oath-taking. His point is that we should live and we should speak in such a way that makes oaths completely unnecessary. Um, Motyer, who's a, a Bible commentator, he said, to say yes and mean it, and to say no and equally mean it is a matter of integrity of character rather than a form of words. It's not about the, the form of the words, like, okay, let me memorize this and make sure I never say these specific words in that specific order. That's, that's not what James is getting at. He continues to say, we practice a devotion to the truth with our lips because the truth dwells within us. So our words and our lives should testify to the spirit of truth that lives in us. We shouldn't have to qualify anything. We shouldn't have to make special commitments. We have the Holy Spirit of the living God dwelling in us to empower us to actually do the things that God has called us to do. Okay, so how does this relate specifically to the context of perseverance in the faith, especially perseverance together in a local church? Well, integrity, integrity in the church strengthens the community of the church. In order for us to grow and persevere spiritually in the face of sin and suffering, we are going to need one another. I hope that's been so clear, especially in, in the last couple weeks. We can't do this alone. We, we can't persevere by ourselves. And God has graciously given us to one another in the community of the local church. That's the point so that we're not enduring, we're not persevering by ourselves. But if we're not honest with one another and we're not true with one another and we don't practice simple faithfulness and we become a people more about empty promises that go unfulfilled, we can't help one another endure. You see, integrity builds trust. And community in the local church is built on the backbone of relational trust. We talk about this with life group leaders. We can give you methods to try to, you know, encourage conversation. But if there is not a culture of trust in the life group, I'm not sharing anything, okay? If I can't trust the other people in the room, I'm not going there with you and we're going to remain at arm's length so can you take a person in this church at his or her word is their word as binding as a contract if it's not if you can't then you're likely not going to pray for them when they suffer do you know why because they're not going to share with you or you're not going to share with them when you're suffering we're not going to pursue one another when we fall into sin because we're not going to know because we don't get that close. Simple integrity in speech and action builds that trust that leads 
to intercession for one another and intervention for one another when we fall away. So let your yes be yes and your no be no. Through your speech and your actions, not your promises, not your vows, but through your simple speech and actions, prove yourself to others in this church to be a person that's worthy of trust. And when you do that, when you do that, relationships are built, then we can begin the process of enduring together and doing what he calls us to um, in the following passage, to, to pray and to pursue one another. So let's be a people of integrity. Let's do the right thing, let's say the right thing, and let's prove ourselves to be trustworthy. Okay, the second, second thing that really takes up the bulk of this passage is this exhortation to be a people of prayer. And the simple exhortation that gives us to pray for one another in verses 13 through 18. So if we're going to persevere in the faith together as we endure suffering and sin, we must intercede for one another. Uh, Let's look at verse 13. I'm gonna read verse 13 all the way through verse 18 and we're gonna break it down just a little bit. James writes, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Okay, so, so James presents to us both the practice of prayer, and then he shares with us the power of prayer. And he gives us a specific example to use that involves both the prayer of the elders and the prayer of the church. So first, he talks about the practice of personal prayer. If you look at verse 13, he says, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. So in verse 13, he begins with this practice of personal prayer. Let me ask you a question. When was the last time you prayed? Don't, you don't have to answer out loud. Don't have to embarrass yourself or, you know, exalt yourself. I just prayed two seconds ago. I'm, I pray without ceasing, you know. Um, but when was the last time you prayed? Think about it. And, and now think about when do you typically pray? I'm not necessarily talking about the time in the day, but are there particular seasons in your life where you find yourself praying more than others? Like, or maybe a better way to say it, I probably should have written this down, but you know, in order to follow Paul's um, command that we pray without ceasing, what times in your life would your prayer life be characterized by that? It's like I'm praying without ceasing. I'm praying all the time. When? Because if you notice what James does here, it's so wise. It's so wise what he does. He says, is anyone suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him praise. So he doesn't give us an out for times we shouldn't be praying. He essentially is saying you need to pray in all circumstances. He he gives this vision of a comprehensive prayer life. He instructs us to pray for ourselves in times of sorrow, and in times of joy. And this is what we learn. Prayer isn't dependent on our circumstances. It's its own thing. 
okay? Your, your prayer life is not connected to the season of life that you're in. It's its own thing. To have a comprehensive prayer life is to pray no matter what happens. You have a good day, you have a bad day, you suffer, you're joyful. And, and I also think it's wise that he says this because we need to be aware that our circumstances can dictate or alter our prayer life. Mottier, again, is helpful here. He says, trouble can give rise to an attitude of rebellion against God and the abandonment of spiritual practices. Equally, times of ease and affluence beget complacency, laziness, and the assumption that we are able of ourselves to cope with life and God is forgotten. So when we suffer, we can be tempted to ignore prayer in an attitude of bitterness. I'm not talking to him. He's the one that allowed this to happen to me. I can't, I can't go there yet. Or when we're comfortable, everything's going good, right? You're, everything's fine. You're, you're in a season of joy. We're tempted to forget to pray in an attitude of complacency and self-sufficiency. What do I need to pray for? I got everything I need. You know, what, what do I need to pray for? I have everything I want. James says, if that's your perspective, you have the wrong perspective on prayer. That's not what prayer is Four, and some of us only pray when we suffer. And again, he tells us to pray when we suffer, but some of us only pray when we suffer. We've, we've kind of turned God into Siri or Alexa, okay? If, if any of you have Apple or Amazon products, you know exactly what I'm talking about. We just got a, a fire TV thing, you know, that we use, and, you know, you, you can command Alexa. You'll say, Alexa, and, you know, and then you just tell Alexa what you want, and then Alexa turns to the show or whatever. We made the mistake of teaching Jude how to, how to use it, um, so it's like nonstop. Alexa, Peppa Pig, you know? Like, we... <laughs> Like, you used to be able to control it just with the remote. Well, now all he has to do is turn the TV on and tell Alexa which show he wants, and then it'll turn on. So we always have to be aware. We made the mistake of teaching him how to use Alexa. But often we do, we do treat God like he's Alexa or Siri because you only talk to Siri, you only talk to Alexa when you need something, right? That's the only time you talk to, to Siri. Whenever you need a reminder, you need, you need an alarm set, you, you, need, you, know, you need Alexa to turn to Peppa Pig or whatever, whatever show that you're watching. But the rest of the time, you know, talk to them of course they're they're means to an end and i'm afraid a lot of us think of god in that way that he's a means to an end he's this great power source and when i'm in need when i need something i go to him with it and then he responds and answers according to his will but james helps us see that prayer isn't reserved for emergencies we pray when we suffer and we pray we sing praise to the lord when we are cheerful Prayer is simple and glorious access to communion with God, no matter the circumstance. Okay, so no matter what the day brings, you have access to God, and you should go to him in prayer. James calls us to pray when we're suffering and when we're joyful. He calls us to pray when we are sick and when we are healthy. He calls us to pray on the worst days, and he calls us to pray on the best days. To pray is to simply be with God to commune with him, to abide in him. So if you're suffering this morning, go to the Lord with your pain in prayer. It, it's, a, it's a weapon that we wield to endure suffering and sin. Pray prayers of lament. Pray prayers of supplication. Pray prayers of confession. 
if you're gonna persevere through suffering, you need to pray for yourself. On the other side, if you're in a season of joy right now, don't feel guilty, like, oh, I wish I had felt worse, you know, so I could be closer to God. No, like, you have access to God all the time, no matter the circumstances, no matter what the day brings. So if you're joyful, go to the Lord with your happiness in prayer. Talk to him. Pray prayers of adoration. Pray prayers of thanksgiving. Every good gift that you receive, James told us in chapter one, is from the Father. So pray at all times. Pray in all circumstances because Jesus died to give you access to God. And so okay, here's, here's more of a specific encouragement I want to give you, or maybe an application. I would encourage you to make prayer a part of your daily calendar. Like, you know, if you have a daily calendar, actually schedule times of prayer. Now, of course, right, we're supposed to pray without ceasing, and you shouldn't, you know, need, be like, okay, I got it on my calendar three times, I'm going to pray three times today. You know, it's, it's, that's not what I'm talking about. But whenever you put prayer on your calendar, like you put a prayer time in the morning, a prayer time, like during lunch or something, whenever it is, and a prayer time in the evening, when you have those scheduled times of prayer, it helps you remember and it helps you practice that no matter how the day is going, no matter what is happening, you are spending time with the Lord in prayer. You're helping yourself see that prayer is comprehensive. It's not just for the times when I really need God. It's also for the times when he has blessed me and shown me so much favor and given me so much. So pray at all times in all circumstances when you're suffering and when you are cheerful. Okay, so, but he doesn't just uh, exhort us to pray for ourselves. He exhorts us to pray for one another. So he kind of moves on to share the practice of corporate prayer. Um, and, and he does it by, by giving a specific example and, and showing us what the elders are supposed to do and what the members are supposed to do. Um, so let's, let's look at verse 14, 15, and 16. And this is the most, in my opinion, the most interesting part of this passage. James writes, Kind of another question that he asks, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Okay, so James suggests a situation and he gives the proper response to that situation. He's saying, if someone in the church is sick, he or she should call for the elders of the church to come and do two things, pray over them and anoint them with oil. And then he makes two really bold statements, really bold statements. He says, the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And then he says, he gives us another one. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Now, with words like save, raise up, sins, and forgiven, it can be really tempting to interpret these verses spiritually, meaning that James is referring to spiritual sickness or sin and spiritual healing salvation. It's really tempting, and, and there have been those who have interpreted this passage in that way, mainly because they're like, the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. That's like a promise. 
That's like a guarantee. And we know from experience that we pray for people and they're not healed. So either we lack sufficient faith. Well, no, that might not be it. Um, What do we do with this? Oh, he must not be talking about physical sickness. He must be talking about spiritual sickness. The problem with that is um, the context demands a literal physical interpretation of this passage. Uh, James's question, first of all, is, is anyone among you sick? That would be an odd question to ask if he's actually referring to spiritual sickness. Because there's no doubt that all of us are sick with sin. Okay? Like, is, is anyone, does anyone among you have sin? You know, like, you know, if, if they have sin, then here's what you're supposed to do. And that would also be an odd response to it. You know, call the elders and have the elders come to this person who is spiritually sick and, and, and pray over them and anoint them with oil and then they'll be forgiven their sins. Like, you can in some dangerous territory if you, if you interpret it spiritually. So I do believe he's actually referring to physical sickness. And, and then plus, even more than that, like, there is no if when it comes to whether or not we have committed sins, right? Like uh, in verse 15 at the end of it, and if he has committed sins, if we're referring to this spiritual sickness, there's no, there's no way that he would phrase it in that way. We all have sinned and we all need forgiveness. So instead, I, I believe that James is talking about actual physical sickness and instructs us about a special circumstance. So a person who is physically sick should call on the elders to pray over them as they anoint him with oil. So the language here actually seems to imply a very serious condition, okay, a debilitating, maybe chronic condition. Um, you know, th- this person is shut in. They have to call for the elders. The elders have to come to them. The praying over them is, is probably literal because they're, they're probably confined to a bed. This is, this is a serious uh, uh, sickness, serious situation. Now, why elders? Because you may also think if you're not an elder, you're off the hook for praying for people, okay? If, if you're sick, oh, you hear about someone in your life group that's sick. Oh, you're sick. Well, call the elders. They'll pray for you. You know, like, no, that's, that's not, that's not the, the deal here. Elders do not replace members as the only ones in the church exhorted to pray. However, the role of an elder does include the responsibility to shepherd and pray for the members of the church. And so since the elders are recognized spiritual leaders of a congregation, if a person is in serious condition, it it makes sense for them to call on the elders to come to them and and to pray over them. And and just just so you're aware, and I know most of you know this, but our elder body, we pray for you so much. Every time we meet, we, we pray through our membership. We pray through our member care lists. I'd say in a given year, we pray over each of our members multiple times throughout the year. We love to pray for you. And if you are in need of prayer, either in this this kind of serious way where we need to come to you or you just need us to pray for you, it is always our privilege, always our joy, and it's our responsibility to pray for you. And it will never, ever burden us to come to you if you are sick to pray over you. Um, Now, the interesting part, oil. Why oil? Um, is this just something, I think sometimes we encounter weird passages in scripture and we're like, yeah, we, it, praying makes sense, but oil, yeah, we'll just act like that's not there. It's there though, okay? Uh, James exhorts these elders to do this, like anoint them with oil. In some cases, if you call us and you're sick and we come to you, we may pray over you and we may anoint you with oil. 
okay? Not because we think that there is special spiritual power in the holy oil, okay? We, we don't believe in, in holy oil. That's, that's not why James exhorts them to, to anoint them with oil. Those who were anointed with oil in the Old Testament were set apart for special service to God. So I do believe that the use of oil here is literal. They, they are literally asking or exhorting the elders to actually anoint a person's head with oil. Okay, I think that's literal. However, I believe that it has um, a symbolic significance to God's healing power. So, if, so anointing a sick brother or sister with oil doesn't mean we think there's some power in the oil to heal. We believe that it signifies our setting apart of this person to God for healing. It's a symbol for the healing power of God. Okay, and then do you notice, you notice in verse 15, the boldness of this claim? So he's given the situation, someone's sick, call the elders to go to them and to pray over them and anoint them with oil. And then he gives the result. Verse 15, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. So why, why so much confidence James says that we should have a humble yet bold confidence in the healing power of the Lord as we trust in the sovereign will of the Lord. I believe that's what he's getting at when he, when he mentions the prayer of faith. The prayer of faith is a prayer that trusts absolutely, absolutely in the Lord to answer with healing, to physically, not spiritually, save, and to physically, not spiritually, raise them up from their sickness. The prayer of faith is a prayer of humility, trust, and utter dependence on an all-powerful God. It's not some mystical wording like, what is the prayer of faith? What is it? You know, we're not searching for some mysterious phraseology for the prayer of faith. We don't believe that, that it guarantees some kind of healing. If the Lord doesn't heal you, hear me loud and clear. If the Lord does not heal you, it is not due to a lack of faith in you or the one praying over you. The prayer of faith puts full confidence, without reservation, full confidence in the Lord to heal as he pleases. That we trust that God has the power to heal and we're begging him to bring about that healing. And then the prayer of faith trust God with the results. It prays boldly and confidently for the Lord to respond with healing, and then it trusts him with how he chooses to deal with that person. So this passage, it gives you full permission to pray bold prayers. I mean, think about it. If, if you're held back from praying boldly to God, are you really trusting him? Like, are, you may be afraid, like, I know that, you know, he, 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 he probably won't respond in this situation. I mean, think about the arrogance of presuming upon God. You know, I'm not gonna pray boldly here because, I mean, he may not do it and he may not want to. Like, God, you know, if you want to, you know, I mean, do what you want. Like, it's okay no matter what. Like, I just, I don't know. And then you just, you don't ask him. In confidence. Don't be afraid of that. Don't be afraid of being let down. 
Sometimes I fear being let down. That's why I don't pray bold prayers. But I think that's what James is calling us to. to be bold in our prayers and to be confident that the Lord can provide healing. Side note. This, uh, this call to pray is not a prohibition against the use of medication. Okay? So, um, you are not in danger of hell for following doctor's orders. Okay? So, don't, don't, don't use the elders. All right? Don't be like, well, I'm not going to do what the doctor said here because I'm going to call on the elders and the elders are going to anoint me with oil and pray over me and I'll be good. No, 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 no. Okay? Like, this, this is not, this is not what, what James is calling for. Um, then we have another problem, or, or it appears to be. In, in verse 15. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. What's he talking about? What's he talking about? That the prayer of the elders, this prayer of faith, that the anointing of oil not only physically heals, but spiritually heals a person? Catholics have used this passage as the basis for what they call extreme unction or last rites. This is the passage that they use. It's a strict sacramental interpretation of the passage. They believe that the anointing of the sick is a special grace like baptism and the Lord's Supper in their view um, that has five effects. They believe that by anointing the sick with oil and praying over them unites the sick person to the passion of Christ, strengthens the, the person who is sick to suffer well, they believe that it affects the forgiveness of sins. If the sick person was not able to obtain it through a sacrament of penance, they also believe that it affects the restoration of health if it is conducive to the salvation of his soul. And finally, they believe that this anointing of the sick, this prayer over the sick, is preparation. It affects the preparation for passing over to eternal life. Um... That's one of many reasons that we're Protestant, okay? <laughs> uh, that, that is not what, what James is, is getting at in this passage. As we've said, no holy oil is involved here. This reference to prayer for the forgiveness of sins is not an addition to faith in Jesus. And the fact that he uses this conditional if lets you know that sickness is not necessarily the result of sin. However, because of what he says after the word if, sometimes it is. Okay, sometimes we are sick because of sins that we have committed. So he says, if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. And I don't think he's just referring to living in a sinful fallen world. We don't need to confess and be forgiven for living in a fallen world. I think that James is saying what I just said, that if a person's sick, sickness is the result of sins he or she has committed, he or she has the guarantee of forgiveness. Now, I th- we also see something interesting here. Even though this is about physical healing, we're given a, a brief reminder that God does care more about your eternal soul than your temporal body. Now, God cares about your body. He cares about how you use them. He cares about what happens to them. I mean, he cares so much about the body that he's going to give us a new one one day. We're going to receive new glorified bodies. But if you are sick because of sins you have committed, you don't just need to pray for physical healing. You need to pray for spiritual restoration. And while God's will may or may not be for you to be physically healed, his will is always 
for you to be forgiven. Always. We always have that guarantee of forgiveness when we turn to God in confession and repentance of our sin. And since we have that guarantee, it leads him to verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Now, if we're going to persevere, if we're going to persevere, we need the prayers of our brothers and sisters. We have to pray for one another. We have to be close enough to one another to know how we need prayer, and we need to intercede. To endure until Jesus returns requires intercession for one another as we face both sickness and sin. And if you were doubting the Lord's power to heal at this point, James wants to make it abundantly clear how powerful, how powerful prayer itself is. Look at the second half of verse 16. It says, The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. So James presents a man, Elijah. And we may be tempted, because Elijah was a great prophet of the Lord, to think, well, of course, of course Elijah was able to pray in this way and have this kind of effect because Elijah was super righteous. He was super close to the Lord and, you know, I'm not Elijah. But the way James presents it, look what he says in verse 17. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He knew that these Jewish Christians he was writing to would think, oh, okay, well, Elijah, great example. I'm not Elijah. He's like, no, 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 he's a man. He's a mere human, just like you and me. He lets us know. You don't have to be some super spiritual person to have access to God. Elijah prayed fervently, earnestly for a miraculous drought, and it didn't rain for three and a half years. And then he prayed again for the drought to end, and the clouds opened, and it, and it rained. He prayed prayers of faith, fully trusting the Lord to answer according to his will. So it's like James is saying, if you follow what I've prescribed above, if you pray in faith to the Lord, here's what can happen. We don't have to spiritualize this example. James's point is clear. There is so much power in prayer. The prayers of the righteous, James says, have great power. Why? Because the righteous are those who are united to Jesus by faith. Because the righteous are ordinary people like you and me, who are clinging solely to Jesus as the basis of our righteousness. And the righteous are the ones, as we said at the beginning of the service, that have special access to God, not because of any super spiritual thing we have attained, but because of our union with Jesus. We have access to the all-powerful God who reigns in the heavens and does all that he pleases. So your ordinary, daily prayers are powerful, to actually bring about real change within God's sovereign will. So whatever you're praying for right now, don't stop praying. Don't stop praying. And don't forget the power of the one to whom you are praying. So to endure together, let's be a people of prayer. And then finally, he, he kind of shifts in verse 19 and verse 20. And he calls us to be a people of pursuit. He calls us to not give up on one another. Look at verse 19 with me. 
My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So he gives us another situation. Someone who claims to be a Christian and in fact may be a Christian, a true Christian, wanders from the truth. James has used the word truth throughout his letter to refer to the gospel, the word of truth that's within you. So the implication is the person in question has strayed from the path of the gospel. They have wandered from the faith. They may have explicitly denied their faith in Jesus. And at the very least, they have left the path. They have stopped following Jesus. I have so many friends. It's, I have so many friends that were in Sunday school with me growing up, and they've just rejected their faith in Jesus. I mean, to see the words, I don't believe that anymore. It, it's heartbreaking. If, if you know what that's like, if you have a family member or a friend or someone close to you that leaves the faith, there was actually an example of a prominent evangelical pastor last week on Instagram. He posted this this horribly sad post about how even though he had pastored for so many years, he now no longer considers himself to be a Christian. It was so sobering for me to see. To see a brother pastor not just leave the ministry, but leave the faith. We're all prone to wander. Their wandering could be theological. Their wandering could be practical. The pursuit of this person, James says, leads to their salvation. So it leads me to believe that this person has wandered down the path of true heresy, which means that they are rejecting core tenet doctrines, first-tier issues. They are denying the Trinity. They are denying the deity or the humanity of Jesus. They are denying the sufficiency of Jesus' atonement. They're denying the resurrection. Okay, we're not talking about people who disagree about baptism. We're talking about first-tier issues here. Or, I actually leave this open as well, since James has been talking about a faith that doesn't work is dead, he could be talking about someone who has a dead faith. They have wandered from the path. They may, on paper, agree with Christian doctrine, but they have practically wandered because they have exhibited a long-term pattern of disobedience and a lack of repentance. So what are we called to do? What are we called to do when someone in our midst truly wanders from the faith? James encourages us with a promise. The one who brings back a wandering brother or sister will save that person's soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Now, of course, uh, you're not atoning for their sins. Only Jesus can and has done that. But by pursuing a wandering Christian and winning them back to faith in Jesus, you serve as an agent of God's relentless grace. God never stops pursuing his sheep. He never stops. Even if they have entered the fold, they didn't like the smell, and they left. God is the good shepherd, and he never stops pursuing his sheep. 
He is relentless in his pursuit. And so if we have a brother or sister, you have a family member who's in Christ who denies the faith and leaves, you don't reject them. You don't cut them off. You do what your father does and you pursue. You pursue. Now, we we do want to be clear. We do want to be clear on the kind of wandering, as we've said. These are not differences of interpretation, okay? So I don't want to receive an email this week about how a brother or sister has wandered because they are or are not a Calvinist, okay? I don't want to, I don't want to receive that. I don't, I don't want you to come to me and say, hey, man, I'm just, I'm heartbroken because my friend has wandered from the faith. They left their Baptist church and now they're Methodist. I just don't know what to do. Like, okay, that's, that's not what we're talking about. <laughs> we're talking about genuine wandering from the truth of the gospel. And I also want to be clear on the way we pursue The way we pursue a truly wandering Christian is crucial to winning them back. Pursuing a wandering Christian from an attitude of self-righteousness will assuredly not bring them back. Okay? They're not going to. If you elevate yourself and you, you view them as being beneath you now. We must pursue one another with truth in love. Did you hear that? Pursue one another with truth. With truth in love in love judgmentalism is not the way to win back a brother or sister humility kindness gentleness patience long suffering grace love and hope that's the way that's the way to win someone back so if you have a child you have a relative you have a friend who has wandered from the faith or if someone in our midst wanders from the faith we don't give up on them in a spirit of humility and with a motive of love, we pursue them. And if they reject us, we keep going. We don't give up on someone even if they say they have given up on Jesus. Let's model what the Father is doing in us and through us, pursuing us in love, with truth, and by his grace. In love and humility, we are called to pursue a wandering brother or sister because that's exactly what God has done for us. All of us are like sheep without a shepherd, wandering down our own paths of life until God found us. In humility and love, Jesus left his father's side taking on human flesh and human sin, though he himself was free from sin. Through his death, in our place. Jesus has given us this community. Okay, he's given us the universal church, but he has given us this local body for the purpose of persevering in the faith together. We are united as a faith family primarily on the truth of the gospel. And through his death in our place, Jesus has given us a spirit of truth who empowers us to live and speak with integrity. So, In the life of this church, let's say what we mean and let's mean what we say. And let's be faithful in our actions and not just talk about being faithful in our actions. Through his death in our place, Jesus has given us access to God. He's opened the way. The curtain has been torn. We have full access to communion with God. So let's pray bold, confident prayers for ourselves and for one another in the good times and in the bad times. And through his death on the cross, Jesus brings wandering lost sinners back into the family of God.
So let's pursue one another with truth. Let's pursue one another in love when we wander. And now we, we come to the table. We, we come to remember and we come to celebrate this great Jesus, his death and his resurrection on our behalf. I'm gonna pray for us and then we're gonna talk about instructions on coming to the Lord's Supper. Father, I pray that you would, as we often pray, empower us to do the word that we have heard. We, we are prone to wander from the truth of the gospel. Would you guard our hearts so that we would not be those who need to be rescued, need to be pursued, and yet would we also be those who follow your example and pursue with truth and love those who have wandered. Father, we are prone to only pray when things get bad, so I pray that you would help us to be a people of prayer. Transform our prayer lives so that, so that we would come to you when things are good and when things are bad, and that we would come to one another in confession and repentance, that we would, that we would pray for one another in order to persevere. And, and Father, in order for that community to be built, we, we need integrity to be built up in us. And you've given us the Holy Spirit. So may we be people of the Spirit. May we demonstrate integrity in our relationships with one another. May we say what we mean and mean what we say. May we be faithful and not just talk about being faithful. Father, you have called us in the book of James to not just know all the right things, but to have a faith in Jesus that works. So empower us, equip us, give us what we need to continue working out our own salvation so that we would build one another up and so that others in our city would see the power of your saving grace in us. And Father, now as we come to the table to celebrate the Lord's Supper, to remember what Jesus has done for us. May we be mindful of unconfessed and unrepented sin. May we confess and repent even now because you died for our sins so that we would be a holy people. And Father, I pray that you would use this table as a means of grace to us so that we would pursue greater holiness as your people. And then finally, Lord, we look forward to that great day when we as your people will share this great supper with you face to face. So be with us now and empower us to do what you've called us to do. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Um, yeah, so the one